Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring some films of the Soviet silent era, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Retention, and in this week's episode I'll be talking about uh, Sevalod Padovkin's 1926 film Mother. And I must say, I was a little bit cynical, worried, um, skeptical maybe, um, as I expressed to David in the introductory episode about how different these films were going to be from each other. Um, you could say that it was very stereotypical of me, a little bit closed-minded, that I was just going to be like, you know, well, how are all these films going to differentiate themselves from each other when, you know, the biggest takeaway when it comes to film innovation that we talk about when it comes to Soviet silent films are, um, you know, montage and how they've uh, revolutionized editing, or you know how they how they were ahead of their time in editing when it comes to at least silent films in the 1920s. Um, it was kind of jokey, but it's also kind of like eh, you know how am I going to separate Battleship Potemkin from Mother, um, from Man with the Movie Camera, um, and David was right. Uh, there are very clear differentiations, and, and I was actually kind of surprised how different Mother was from Battleship Potemkin, not just in the sense of the plot, but also just the filmmaking techniques, um, what uh, Padovkin does as a director to kind of emphasize and highlight um, emotion and um, how it works as also an effective piece of, of propaganda and an, uh, and an effective film in similar but also subtly different ways than Battleship Potemkin did. Um, uh, Padovkin um, has been described um, as a dedicated propagandist, unlike, um, uh, or at least he was described by that um, as such in an, an article from The Guardian that I will link to on, on the Facebook page. Um, and Padovkin, um, as a director versus Eisenstein, Padovkin was more concerned with um, casting people who fit the roles um, instead of trying to kind of cast actors to portray certain things. But he was really, he had the roles in his mind, what he wanted to do, and he would cast people that would fit them. And rather than, um, you know, try and direct these actors or these people to kind of fulfill a certain point, he would kind of use who they were and how they looked um, to fulfill an archetype. Um, and then he, he used the editing to convey uh, psychology and emotion. Um, this is a quote from himself, um, and by himself, I mean Padovkin in a, I think it was a book that he wrote called Film Technique and Film Acting. And he says, I tried to affect the spectators, not by the psychological performances of an actor, but by plastic synthesis through editing. So basically, he had a person that he thought fit the role perfectly, and he would use image, he would use the visuals, he would use how visuals are, you know, working together with him or juxtaposed with him to get an emotional reaction from you instead of trying to make you feel um, a specific way because of their performance or because of uh, you know how the narrative is unfolding, basically. Um, once again, Mother, just like Battleship Potemkin, um, is both an effective piece of propaganda. They are both effective pieces of propaganda because they are effective films. Um, and they are effective films because they are effective pieces of propaganda. As I mentioned in the Battleship Potemkin episode, you can't separate those two things from each other. You can't say, well, here's 
um, why it you know, is a good piece of uh, propaganda, but maybe not such a good film, or here's why it's such a, a good film, but also why it doesn't work as a piece of propaganda. If you are feeling any type of reaction, emotional, visceral, intellectual, from it, it is because it is both an effective film and an effective piece of propaganda. They are really inseparable. Once again, Mother, like Battleship Potemkin, romanticizes the 1905 Russian Revolution. This was the one that you may uh, remember I said in the last one. Vladimir Lenin called sort of like the, the great dress rehearsal for the ultimately successful 1917 revolution, which overthrew the czars and which instituted um, the, um, the communist um, regime that would uh, be instituted officially in 1922. I almost said the capitalist regime. Um, that's an interesting Freudian slip. Um, but Mother, um, while, while Battleship Potemkin focused on um, sort of the soldiers as, uh, or, or the, the, the sailors as sort of the, the symbol of the revolution, um, Mother really displays like the, the plight of the working class, um, you know, the, the, the people that would be the, the large um, revolutionary force, the people who would really be moved and would rise up because of this message of communism and wanting to overthrow the czars and wanting to change their life for the better you know that it's it sort of um battleship potemkin focused on um sort of the the um the the government force as a, as a symbol and this one focuses more on the populace as the symbols basically and there's a lot of footage a lot of locations and a lot of shooting which emphasize the plight of the poor. I mean, just the the garb that they are wearing, and you just kind of see how they are really kind of uh, they are really lacking in resources, or how the houses are so small and cramped, or even the bar that we see in the in one of the introductory scenes is just this. It's really sorry to say, really kind of a, a, a dump. Um, and, and and there are scenes later in the film where you see the conditions that especially the, the working people are in where they're kind of sleeping together on hay in these factories where they are working um, and you just kind of you really get a sense of sort of hopelessness that comes from these people and you, you the film really wants you to feel why they were yearning for this revolution why they were yearning for this up uprising um, in, in the first uh, you know and and, and the film does a, a, a remarkable job, just like Battleship Potemkin early on, of codifying um, our characters, who we are supposed to be relating to, who we are rooting for, who are the villains, basically who the good guys are from the bad guys. And we know early on who are the people that we are going to be rooting for, who are the ones that, are going, that we're going to be emotionally following their journey, and who are the ones that we want to see overthrown, basically. Um, in the first 10 minutes, just in the first 10 minutes of the film, we already um, know who our characters are, we understand the sides of the conflict, and we understand their relationships with each other. And this is done through really simple film techniques. Um, one of the um, very first images that struck me as, as resonant and as powerful was when we see the close-up of um, Vlasov, the father. And Vlasov is, is the, the family's last name, but he's not referred to as anything other than just Vlasov. Um, when he, he shows up at the, at the house and he's standing in the doorway and we cut to a close-up of his face and he just looks like with his 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 unkempt facial hair and his hair and the, uh, this monstrous look in his eyes he looks like a monster and the way that they light him and the shadows kind of casting on his face make him look like something otherworldly or monstrous it actually reminded me of uh, visuals that you'd later see a lot in German expressionist films um, just in the sense of a heightening kind of physical appearance and using light and shadow to kind of emphasize and angles to emphasize or, or not even emphasize to 
overemphasize or exaggerate basically characteristics, people, places to kind of elicit an emotional or visceral kind of response from you. We immediately see that this guy is is a bad character. I mean, even before he starts trying to um, steal the clock from the wall or physically assault his wife, as soon as he shows up, we we are immediately kind of uh, cued into the fact that this guy is bad news. And later on, we find out as people are referring to him um, that you know there's a need to quote tame him. Um, he's he has this wild energy about him. He's he's a drunk. He's a thief. He is uh, trying to steal the clock from his own home because he wants to trade it in for alcohol. Um, this is clued into, and without a moral judgment, but I, I mean, I guess you could say with a moral judgment, because this is a film looking back at um, a character such as this, who is um, very much in step politically with the far right of uh, of the Tsarist party, of the Nationalist party. Um, yeah, they're casting judgment on this guy and the people that he's associated with as these are, are bad people. Um, we are also introduced to his son, Pavel Vlasov. Um, he is one of the most important things. He's young. Young people are going to play a factor not just in this film, but also in the 1905 and the 1917 revolution. Um, he tries to stop his father from assaulting his mother with, and this is very important, a hammer. And if you know anything, even the most basic 101 kind of elements of the USSR and communism, what was the symbol on the flag? What was the symbol of the revolution? The sickle and the hammer. And I can't uh, I can't attest to whether this was an intentional thing or not, but I found it quite intriguing that one of the things that he 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 picks up to try and stop his father is the hammer, is this thing that would ultimately become a symbol of the Russian Revolution, of the Soviet Revolution. Um, and then we have uh, Niovna, who is the mother, and she's only really kind of referred to as the mother or mother in the film, but uh, she she is given a name, and it is uh, Niovna, which I think the the name is taken from. This was based on a Maxim Gorky novel, so I have to assume it's taken from there. But um, it's interesting that when we are introduced to her, she's inside. It kind of represents the interior life, kind of the role that a, a, a mother and a woman played in um, Russia before this revolution. You know, they were concerned. They were the housekeepers. They, they maintained the home. You know, the, the men, the, the young men, the old men, they were outside. They worked. They brought in money, whereas the mothers, the women, they, they maintained the inner life. They maintained the house, basically. Um and then we are also introduced to the Black Hundreds, who are the people that are um, recruit um, Vlasov to be this 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 tamed or, or this untamed wild bull for them, basically. And what's interesting to me is even if you know nothing about the Black Hundreds, and I'll get to them in just a little bit, we know that these are bad, nefarious characters by, by a few ways, basically. One, you know, they're kind of in the back of the bar, kind of... Um, uh, whispering to each other and kind of plotting, and they, they, there is this plight kind of going on around them. There's these a lot of unsavory older characters. This is the this is the, uh, an important distinction and difference that this film um, separates the revolutionary sides from the far right side because of the far right is often older people and the revolutionary side are younger people. And once again, this kind of codifies as do. Who are the old guard? Who is the young guard? What is the old way of, of governing? And what is going to be the new way of governing? But the Black Hundreds are sitting in a back table. They are whispering to each other. They're kind of plotting. You see that they are kind of um, speculating or scoping out and just kind of taking in the scene that they are, they are thinking and kind of basically for a recruiting tool. Who can we use to, uh, to, to, to recruit for this demonstration that we have coming up? And also, interestingly... They're called the Black Hundreds. They are all dressed in black. And this is something that I talked about in the Battleship Potemkin episode where we are immediately cued into who are the guys we're going to be rooting for versus the guys are going to be bad because of how 
visually and psychologically we respond to the sailors who are dressed in white and the petty officers or the, the commanders who are dressed in dark colors. And we have the Black Hundreds here who are, like their name, dressed entirely in black. And the Black Hundreds, once again, historically they were... Um, I don't want to say a regiment, but they were basically, they were far-right supporters of the nationalist government, of, of the czars, basically. So they lost everything when there was this successful Soviet revolution. But even if you didn't know anything about them and their historical context, this film immediately cues you into, these are the bad guys. We have to watch out for them. And then, of course, we have the workers who are the ones that are going to try and um, demonstrate and strike. And, of course, the Black, the Black Hundreds recruit these people, including Vlasov, to basically um, up, uh, turn, upturn, um, destroy, or upset this strike, basically, by physically, uh, through physical violence, um, much to the delight of uh, an older, uh, affluent man, who I have to assume is, is the owner of the factory, as they kind of watch as a spectator sport, basically, as um, these young, vibrant um, revolutionaries are basically beaten and killed by uh, the, by this uh, other regime. So once again, we have a clear good guys and we have clear bad guys. We have this early codifying of um, who we're going to be rooting for, who we're going to be rooting against. And what's interesting about Mother is that even, even making the Mother, even making Njovna the protagonist, was a propaganda tactic, basically. Um, the fact that we have this um, early Soviet film which makes a, a woman the, the protagonist of the film, is itself a propaganda piece or, or, or a, a tactic of propaganda filmmakers or propaganda authors, for, for lack of a better word, to immediately make you sympathetic towards their cause and to, towards their philosophy. Um, I'm going to quote here from a, an article that I will also post on the Facebook page called um, Ideology and Reality, Society and uh, Savalad Padovkin's Mother. It's by a woman named Kara Marissa Dillion. Um, it's from a website called Sense of Cinema. And I just, it's going to be a little bit of a long excerpt, but I'm going to read it for me to kind of, because it says better than I could convey to you why even having a woman as the central figure who goes through a character arc, why this is a, 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 a probably the most effective piece of propaganda to kind of get you engaged in, in, in the philosophy of these, these Soviet filmmakers. So she says, the Marxist emphasis on equality catered well to the Russian Empire's diverse population, and the Soviet planners, anxious to implement utopian ideologies, strove to divest women of their oppression. Many believe that the traditional home would never would wither away in favor of communal state institutions, which would allow women to enter the workforce, gain economic independence, and access to public society. During Tsarist times, Russian women lived in a dichotomy. They created and maintained the home, which constituted the center of Russian life, but also lived as second-class citizens subordinate to men. Soviet leaders utilized the central role women traditionally held and promoted the new state as, uh, as women divested of such constraints, disassociating the new Soviet women from her traditional role. Their method in which to accomplish this often led to a melding of gender attributes, leaning heavily towards masculinity and displaying women as less feminine in their appearances. Thus, the Soviet leaders worked to create a unique reconfiguration of role and perception of women. So basically what it's kind of trying to say is in old Russia, Women had one role, um, or it was commonly seen that they had one role, and by um, trying to reshape the role of women, the, the, the Soviets, these young revolutionaries, um, were 
basically trying to um, uh, appeal to a mass diverse population of Russia. And um, by making a, a woman the center protagonist of this film, we see how um, this uh, filmmaker, how this piece of propaganda would, uh, would, would basically support those ideas of basically like, hey, this is how the old way was. This is how the old government viewed you. This is how we view you as a vital piece of this revolution. We are reshaping the world and we are shaping the role of what you can play in society. So, you know, come and join us, basically. Um, and that also leads me into um, uh, an, an interesting kind of um, exploration of the role of women in this film because there's really only, I guess you could say there are three significant women. There's the mother, there is this young woman who is, um, it seems like, kind of a girlfriend of Pavel, and then there is a, a wealthy um, aristocratic woman who is in the court after Pavel is arrested. Um, and it's interesting, I want to focus on specifically the two, the two women who are close to Pavel, the mother and this um, unnamed um love interest, I guess you could describe her, um, because you have the love interest who is, you know, we assume based on her interactions with Pavel early on in the film is that she's going to play a significant role in the film and in his life. She um, provides him, I believe, with the guns to hide in his in his home, and there is an interesting shot where, um, you know, when they part, we see a, a wide shot of her kind of looking back, and we cut to a close-up of her face, and she has a smile, which cues us into, once again, the, the wonders of editing, her romantic inclinations towards Pavel. So we assume she's going to have a significant role in his life and in uh, the role that he plays as a revolutionary. However, once the revolution begins, once there are marches, once there are protests, once they march on the prison to try and set these prisoners free, she basically disappears. She's kind of in the background, but she is not um, involved. She no longer plays a significant role. And... I don't think that this, that the movie is doing that or that Padovkin is doing that to say anything about love or romantic interest, though I, I would entertain arguments certainly as um, there could be something there uh, as to how vital of uh, or not vital of a role romantic uh, love was in this political movement, but I think it says more about her as a character and how she is not significant because she does not support the revolution. She is not all about the revolution. She is in the revolution for selfish reasons, and that's only because she is in love with Pavel, which itself is cool, but also when it comes to this film as a propaganda piece, does not serve anything which is important. Because she is not connected with the philosophy of the revolution, she is not a significant character. Contrast that with the mother, who is um, who becomes a symbol of the revolution, basically. She is um, somewhat androgynous. We know that she is the mother because, one, she is referred to um, as the mother um, quite often, but also um, the film title. But she there's nothing really feminine about her. And by stripping away kind of her sexuality or her gender, basically, she is free to become a universal symbol for anyone who is who was involved with the revolution, who is interested in the revolution, who is looking back to try and glorify it as she can be a universal symbol that anyone can access or relate to, basically. Um, you know, she, she goes through this, this character arc as kind of uh, as being not just skeptical, but also kind of condemning of the revolution, kind of having to choose between her husband of the old guard and her her, her son of the, the new political movement, and she's kind of torn apart, and it, and it emotionally destroys her, but then she eventually goes to this character arc where once she sees the injustice of the Russian government, she comes around and embraces the revolution. She carries that flag that um, she is 
uh, enveloped in in a few shots near the end. Like you know, eventually her identity goes away. We see that with the um, the sailor in the battleship Potemkin, who started the revolution, but then. Uh, became but <laughs> became killed, but then was killed and became a martyr, a symbol of this uprising. Her, you know, being wrapped in the flag, being this androgynous, genderless kind of symbol of the poor and the working class rising up and embracing this philosophy. Um, and it, it's it's interesting and, and it's fun too that the the flag that she was carrying, that she was killed while carrying this, you know, the this I have to assume it's a red flag that's kind of torn up and got a few holes in it is the flag that is flying on top of, I believe it's the Kremlin at the end of the film, you know, once again, kind of symbolizing this ultimate achievement, this idea of the revolution kind of succeeding and her, you know, her standing up as a symbol as, as this has, you know, this has finally, she has finally succeeded. People like her has succeeded. The, the revolution has been successful. Um, and, and, and it's in that is an example too, basically, uh, you know, of of her kind of being a, a symbol and and seeing these visual shots of her with the flag and in this march at the end, um, leads me into this idea of how uh, there are I think subtle differences between how Eisenstein used editing and montage in Battleship Potemkin versus how Padovkin um, uses it to kind of key us into character psychology. When it when it came to uh, Battleship Potemkin, it was. The editing was much more contrasting, you know, in that long quote that I that I referenced from Roger Ebert in his Great Movies article, it talked about how there's a juxtaposition between the editing, this idea of how um, uh, the, the soldiers kind of marching down the Odessa steps and then cutting to a, an image of a guy with no legs fleeing um, keys us into kind of more a, a more general emotional state or, or kind of um, a more thematic idea, basically, of these people being unable to flee from these oppressive forces, that the people being unable to escape. It's, it's a, it keys us into themes and motifs and, and, and kind of more grandiose sweeping statements, whereas Podovkin uses the editing to key us into, as I said at the beginning, more internal characters, emotional states, basically. And there's a few, I mean, he does this many times, but there's a few examples that I wanted to highlight. So, for instance, when the Russian forces are um, searching through Pavel's house and looking for the weapons that he has stored under the floorboards, we have the soldiers kind of tossing the place basically and we're and every now and again we cut to a close-up of the colonel stroking his leather gloves and it keys us into uh, a smugness uh, a superiority and an oppressiveness of the colonel now we don't want to relate to him but we certainly understand from those juxtapos juxtapose cuts what the colonel is is feeling you know the colonel um his 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 stature what his status is at that time, and we can also infer from that basically what the characters are feeling about him because we know what we are feeling about him in that sense. Um, there's another quite effective instance later on during the trial when the judges are getting ready, and they are these, I don't want to say eloquent, but they are these um, luxurious, wealthy people. We see them getting dressed in these just elaborate costumes, and we hear one of the judges talking about, um, it seems like he's talking about a woman when he talks about this um, beautiful, you know, he's looking at a picture and he's talking about this beautiful um, woman that this judge has, and then we cut later to see that he is talking about a horse, and a horse is very much a symbol of the wealthy and the elites. Um, 
it's just that you know and and we 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 know and then later on when we see the judges kind of actually trying to preside over the trial and we see one flipping through you know he's looking down and he's flipping through his pages and he's looking for his watch to just kind of see what time it is and so it's little stuff like that we're immediately kind of cued into who these characters are what they are feeling um in that moment specifically what they are feeling about these poor oppressed people that have been the victims of this Russian state, basically. Um, Another effective um, example that we see later on is um, shortly before the march begins and the film is talking about the, you know, these workers who are sleeping in these, in these dire conditions and that they all have dreams as well. And we are cutting to images of a, of a farmer plowing his field, and you know, and and you know, this march happens on May Day, which is itself a very significant day. It's the coming of spring, um, but it's also um, quite a significant time in the Russian Revolution because of when, you know, some of this, uh, some of these protests and 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 demonstrations occurred. Um, so it, it it immediately, you know, this this vision of a a worker who's in a factory, but then dreaming about a um, a farm cues us into. Uh, two different things accuse us into his in, in internal life and what he is yearning for, what he wants. There's that beautiful image of we see a close of a hand digging through dirt, and then when the the dirty hand comes up, it is um, contrasted with an an immediate cut to the the worker in this in the factory, you know, having his folded hands. Basically, it's this idea of sort of a a praying for something, a dreaming for something that he wants to achieve, you know, of what he wants to be using his hands for of of what this worker ultimately wants to um have and achieve with his life but then by using specifically the image of farming and of um growing something it it also cues us into this idea of the revolution of 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 something new growing of something new starting you know this idea of spring of new life forming of a transition of a seasonal change something new is happening and the film wants us to think or or the the film you know (laughs) not just wants us to think, but because, once again, this was a film made in retrospect, um, is cueing us into that, like, this new thing, this new wonderful, um, beautiful growth is the growth of this movement. Is, is Are these workers kind of rising up and making these demonstrations? And that also is um, is seen, once again, in this motif, which is of the the, the, the rushing river, you know, as the people are marching towards the prison, we are continuously cutting back to this uh, this image of a... Um, a rushing river, you know, um, filled with blocks of ice, and this idea of once again the transition from winter to spring of the old to the new, and this rushing water, this flowing, you know, force is being compared to these revolutionaries who are marching, who are demonstrating, who are ushering in something new into this society, um, and then of course, you know, it all kind of culminates at the end with this, uh, this skyline of of this um, industrial. Um, grandiose um, Russian skyline, cueing us into, once again, this idea that this was built because of the revolutionaries. This was built because of these protests. This was, uh, you know, built because of these protesters. This was uh, built because of these people, because of these young people, because of buying into the communist ideal. This is what has achieved all this creation. This is what has made this city, this country, the great thing for what it is. So once again, it's so many um, effective filmic techniques kind of um, trying to tell us of why communism is such a great thing and such an effective um, social force. And so you see, once again, throughout this film, um, how 
Mother was an effective piece of propaganda and an effective film at the same time. Once again, this is something I'm going to come back to, and you know, in, in I'm sure a man with a movie camera, just this idea of this this interconnectedness between great filmmaking and great. And I hate calling a piece of propaganda great, so I'm, I'm I keep having to correct myself and and stopping and saying that it's effective. But an effective film and an effective piece of propaganda, and this one kind of really. Um, Immediately, or not immediately, but from the very beginning, cueing us into the audience of like, you know, we're going to focus on the plight of the poor and we're going to focus on how they are, you know, an essential force or were an essential force in this uprising, in this revolution, immediately also kind of um, gets you on an emotional level um, to relate to uh, what is um, going on. And, and just that, that focus on class and on the, the and, and specifically on how the wealthy and upper class just didn't give a shit about the poor. There was some of that in Battleship Potemkin. This one goes into it in a lot more detail um, and really, you know, we're living in a time now where I continuously hear the phrase, eat the rich. Um, and it's interesting to me that um, that uh, that idea of the more things change the more they stay the same. We're looking at a film which is once again um, over... Let me do the math. Yes. Um approaching 100 years old, 94 if my math is correct, and yet this idea of um, eating the rich <laughs> um, has been around for a, a long, long time, and it's just, it's, it's uh, the one thing that is changing is just which country and which context um, are we continuously coming back to this idea, so... Um, an interesting thing about Mother when it comes to streaming, if you want to watch it again, um, if you go on uh, IMDb and look it up, um, on your web browser specifically, you'll see that there's kind of a, underneath the, the summary of it, there's a little uh, link where you can watch on Prime Video. And so I had seen that when I was going through the introduction with David. And that does bring you to a place uh, on Amazon Prime where you can watch the film for free. And yet when I went to go watch it on my own, um, going to the web browser or, or going to Amazon through my web browser or even uh, going through Prime Video through my Roku, was unable to find the film. And at first I thought that that was... You know, maybe the rights had run out. This often happens with streaming uh, rights when it comes to certain movies. Maybe, you know, last last week, two weeks ago when I was talking to David, maybe they, they did have the rights to it and they lost it. Um, and so I ended up finding the, the film on YouTube uh, and watched it there. So it is, um, if you do have trouble with it, you can, you can of course, go to YouTube and watch the, the full version. That I will say there are two different versions, um, one of which I believe is called Il Madre because, th- be warned, the quality is not great, and all the subtitles, or, or all the titles are in Italian, so if you don't speak Italian, you will not necessarily understand what is going on. Um, but then I realized uh, what actually was happening was if you want to find Mother on Prime, uh, specifically the free version, what you have to do is search specifically for Mother Silent or Mother Silent Film, and it will bring you to Mother, but it will not be the same title, it will not be the same cover, because it's basically um, a, um, the film from a, like, basically classic film collection from 2007, so it will not be the same mother poster or cover art that you are used to seeing online or on IMDb, and it'll also not have 1926, it'll have 2007 as a date, so it's a little bit deceptive, but if you want to watch the film for the first time or rewatch it again on Prime Video, uh, you do have to specifically search for Mother silent um or you can go on youtube and just type uh, type in mother and then uh, uh Sevalot padovkin and you will be able to watch it in full there as well and it is both versions that you will find on youtube and the one that you will find on prime are the same one i believe that it was the restored version from 1968 
um, or I should say it's a restored version that in 1968 they also added a new um, orchestration and audio track to it. So um, the, that's another thing about the Italian version is that the, the quality is not super great. You can tell it was the one before they restored it. So just be on the alert for that. So um, as always, it is easy enough to get in touch with me if you want to um, add something to this, if you want to disagree, if you want to illuminate me when it comes to how I have gotten um, Russian history uh, dramatically wrong. Shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Nolan Fix His Teeth. Catch up on back episodes of the show at battleshipretention.com. Go to the podcast drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly um, or idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. Again, I will um, highlight my other podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, in which James McCormick and I review the cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft. And in April, we are um, honoring the late Stuart Gordon, who passed away um, in March by covering uh, From Beyond from 1986 and Dagon, that episode will be going up shortly. So that does it for um, Mother. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be finishing up this month with um, Ziga Veritas, the man with the movie camera, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 